0: Today, we are going to partake of the Lord's Table for the first time in our church. And in preparation, we're going to look at this meal that Jesus has given to us. And I want you to know that it's a very important Christian practice. There are only two rituals, two um, what are called sacraments for the Christian life. They are baptism and the Lord's Table. And in both of them, you have a lot of rich symbolism and meaning, and truly it is infinitely deep. Uh, we can never exhaust it, and so today we're just going to scratch the surface. And so with that in mind, um, let's read the text. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 26. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you Until he comes. So I have uh, three points. Here's the outline. Number one, we're going to see that this is a meal of death. Number two, we're going to see that this is a meal of death that we eat. And then number three, this is a meal of death that we eat together. That's the outline. So first point, this is a meal of death. So what is this meal? This meal is Jesus' last night before his arrest. Before his crucifixion, and he gives the meal to his disciples as a ceremony that they are to reenact, so that they could remember him. So that when he is no longer with them, they can look back and remember. And um, what's really remarkable is what Jesus wants them to remember. Jesus is giving them this symbolic uh, drama that is pointing to an event in Jesus' life. And notice, the meal is not a dramatization of his birth, or any of his miracles. It's not an illustration of his teachings, like the Sermon on the Mount, or his healing ministry. But this meal is a dramatization of his death. How do we know that? Jesus says, this bread is my broken body. This cup is my blood poured out. And then at the end, he says, As often as you eat and drink, you proclaim my death. Now think about that. Of all the things that Jesus wants us to remember him, it's his death. Right? You cannot understand who Jesus is, you cannot understand his ministry, his life, until you understand his death, until you understand The centrality of his death. Now, what does his death mean? He tells us in verse 24. He says, this is my body, which is, here's the answer, for you. Now, the English word for is a little bit ambiguous, but the Greek word uh, huper has a very specific, almost technical meaning. Huper means um, in place of, instead of. And so what Jesus is saying here is, it's his death instead of our death. It's his death in the place of our death. So what is he saying? He's saying, it should have been your death. It should have been my death. Why? Because Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Because we have sinned, we have earned we have earned a death. We, have, we deserve death. That's the metaphor. Because of our rebellion, we are under the sentence of death. That's the bad news. But the good news is that God, in his great love and mercy, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live the life we should have lived, to die the death we should have died. And then he stood in our place on the cross, and then by his death, we receive eternal life. That is the central message of Christianity. The central mes- message of Christianity is substitutionary death. There's a, um, there's a story that um, Brian Chapel tells. Brian Chapel is a, is a pretty well-known pastor. He grew up, uh, he tells a story about his hometown. He grew up in a small town in Missouri. And uh, in his hometown, there were these uh, two boys, two brothers. And then one day, they were playing where they shouldn't have been playing. They were strictly warned about this, because there were these banks along the river, and they were running along the banks, and there's this place where the ground is not solid. Where, uh, the, there's this loose soil, uh, mixed with the, uh, the water, and it's very dangerous because it's basically, it basically acts like quicksand. And so the boys were running along the banks and they stepped into this place and even though they were relatively, you know, they didn't weigh very much, they started to sink very quickly. And the, the ground, the, the, the foundation, was so far down beyond their height that they were going to go underneath the surface. And so they were about to die. And that night they didn't come home. Nobody knew where they were. And so they, everyone went out looking for them. You know, the police, the, neighborhood, uh, the neighbors, the parents. And then they found the place. And they saw one of the boys, unconscious but still alive, his head just above the ground. And they dug him out uh, to his waist. And when he revived, they asked him, where is your brother? Where is your brother? And he looked at them and he said, I'm standing on him. I'm standing on his shoulders. The brother sacrificed his life for his brother. This is sacrificial love. This is sacrificial death. And it moves us. You know why? Because it is the most beautiful thing in this world. And that's what God did for us in Jesus Christ. He sacrificed his life for us. And Uh, In theology, this is called the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. Now, I want you to know a lot of people um, object to this. A lot of modern people really do not like the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. This, This whole idea that there has to be blood atonement for sin, that somebody has to die For our sins, people say it's it's bloodthirsty and, and cruel. They hate it. And so there's been all of these attempts to revise, to come up with alternate explanations. You know, there has to be another way. But the problem with all of these alternate explanations is why then did Jesus have to die? What was the purpose of the cross? How do you account for the cross? Now, one of the, the, the most prominent, the most prominent of these um, alternate explanations is called the Moral Influence Theory. It's a very awkward name, uh, but the Moral Influence Theory was uh, coined and conceived of first by um, a medieval theologian named Peter Abelard. And this is what Peter Abelard says. He says, our greatest problem, humanity's greatest problem, is not our guilt, it's not the debt of our sins, Because, he says, God has already forgiven us in his heart. Why wouldn't he forgive us unless he were holding a grudge? And so he says, the greatest problem, our greatest problem is that we don't know we've been forgiven. We don't know that God loves us. And he says, we are like a rebellious child estranged from her parents, right? We're like a a teenager living on the streets, shivering in the cold because... She doesn't know that she can come home. And so Peter Abelard says that the human race is trapped in fear and shame. And what we really need is for our hearts to be softened. And so God sent his son to die on a Roman cross to demonstrate his love, to let us know we can come home. Right? The purpose of the cross is not to forgive us, but to show us that he loves us. That's the moral influence theory. The problem, the problem is that Jesus' death, that means, did not accomplish any objective purpose. But only the subjective purpose of to win our hearts to God. And that would make the cross a travesty. It would make an, an absurd death. So imagine, and uh, this is an illustration that, that, that Tim Keller uses that I really like. He says, imagine that there's a boy and a girl walking along a river. And the boy says to the girl, let me show you how much I love you. And then he jumps into the river, he drowns and he dies. Would the girl say, oh, how he loved me. <laughs> no, she would say, that was totally insane. What a jerk. That, that's not love. That's... that's wicked and irrational. But suppose that um, the girl falls into the river and it's a raging river and so she's in very real danger. And then the boy dives in and he's fighting against the current and with the last inch of his strength he pulls her to safety but then in the process he perishes, he dies. Then she could truly say Oh, how he loved me. He gave his life for me. I want you to listen. This is very important. There was an objective reason why Jesus died. It was to satisfy the wrath and the justice of God against sin. We were under the sentence of death. We were under true danger. But then Jesus took our place. It was his death instead of our death. That's the gospel. That's what this meal is dramatizing. So that's the first point. It's a meal of death. Secondly, it's a meal of death we eat. So this meal is a dramatization of his death. But notice, Jesus does not just perform the drama with the disciples on the side, sitting there watching. But the drama includes the disciples, so that they're not just spectators, but they are participants. Jesus does not only say, this bread is my body, this cup is my blood, and then that's it. What does he say? He says, take it, eat, and drink. It's participatory. What does this mean? (laughs) What does this mean? This is so deep. And um, I will try to do this justice. What it means is that it's not enough to passively acknowledge that Jesus died for you. But you have to actively take hold, take possession of his death into your life. Think about the metaphor of eating. Eating is a very involving activity, right? You have to chew, you have to swallow, you have to take the food into you, and then it nourishes you, right? It literally becomes part of your body. Or let me put it another way. What does Jesus mean when he says, remember me? He says this in verse 24, and then again in verse 25. He says, do this in remembrance of me. Now, unfortunately, unfortunately the English word remember is uh, rather weak. It's lost a lot of its power. Because in English, the word means to recall a past event, right? Like, do you remember what happened yesterday? Yes, I remember, right? And so it's something that you only do with your mind, right? It's a purely mental activity. But the Hebrew word remember, which is uh, zakar, includes both the mind and action. So for example, Genesis chapter 9, it says, God remembered Noah in the ark. It does not mean God is like, oh my, oh my goodness, (laughs) Noah, you're in the ark, I had forgotten all about you. It means he thought about his promise to Noah, and then he acted to save Noah, to cause the flood waters to recede. Or in Genesis chapter 30, when it says God remembered Rachel, it means that he listened to her prayers, and then he acted. He opened her womb. And so to remember the body and the blood of Christ is not just to acknowledge intellectually that Jesus died for you, but it's to take that truth and to act upon it. It's to take that truth and and to weave it into your into your life. And that's actually um, pretty close to the the meaning of the old English word remember. Because you have to realize that the opposite of remember is dismember. What does it mean to dismember? Right. We're talking about hands, fingers, limbs. To this member is to tear a body apart because member means body part. And therefore to remember is not just to think, but it's to graft. It's to sew. It's to attach. It's to fuse members, body parts together. And so to remember the body of Christ, again, is not just to think about Jesus dying on the cross, But it's to take what he did for you and to fuse it into your soul, to sow it into your heart. Do you understand? Some of you are saying, okay, (laughs) what does that actually mean? Like, What does that practically look like? So let me give you an example. Uh, Several weeks ago, I shared the story of Johnny Erickson Tata. Uh, when she was 17 years old, uh, she describes herself as athletic, full of life and promise, headed for college. And in the summer before college, she went down to the beach with her friends. Uh, this is the Chesapeake Bay. And then she dived into shallow water. Her head hit the ground. She severed her spinal cord, and she became a quadriplegic. She became paralyzed from the neck down. And she says that those first months in the hospital, were really tough. She went through a series of uh, painful surgeries, but she kept telling herself, I'm going to be I'm going to be okay. God is going to heal me. That's what she told herself. She had grown up in a Christian home, she had gone to church all of her life, and she said she thought of God as this kindly grandfather who, if you asked him, would give her nice things. And so all throughout her, you know, teenage life, She would ask to lose weight. She would ask to find a boyfriend. And that was the extent of her spiritual life. It was very shallow. But as she was lying there in the hospital, she said she would go through these intense bouts of claustrophobia where it felt like she was trapped in her own body. And she says the months would go by. The months would roll on. And she sank into this deep depression. David Brooks, uh, in his book, The Second Mountain, I I, I really love this book. He says that suffering, um, he says that suffering disrupts the normal patterns of your life. He says it reminds you that you are not who you thought you were. It smashes through the floor of what you thought was the basement of your soul and reveals a cavity below. And then it smashes through that floor and reveals a cavity below that. He says, suffering strips away all the little comforts that you've surrounded yourself, that you've used so that you don't have to think about your life. Johnny Erickson Tata in the hospital lost all of her comforts, she was stripped bare. And what saved her, she says, was discovering a robust theology, the sovereignty of God. Someone had given her a copy of uh, Lorraine Bettner's um, The Reformed Doctrine of Predestination, which is a very dense you know, theological work. But she had a lot of time on her hands. And so she would read, and uh, they, they, they would give her this little device that she could hold with her mouth. and She, she could turn pages. And so she said she read and read and read this book. And what she discovered in its pages is this great God, this majestic God who is not powerless, who is not absent-minded, who controls all things, who is sovereignly over every... There's no maverick molecules in the universe. And because he loves her, he allowed this terrible suffering into her life, not to punish her or to afflict her, but to draw her closer to her, himself. And she says that when that truth became real to her, like when it when it was more than just a doctrine, but it, it became something palpable and real that she could build the rest of her life on, she says that saved her life. That gave her purpose and reason to live. I think that for many Christians, our salvation is just an abstract concept. But it doesn't have teeth. It doesn't have like weight. It's just a doctrine in our head. And I want you to know that when when you come to this table, you are making a commitment you are saying, I'm going to take the love of God and it's not just going to be something that I intellectually understand, but I'm going to touch it. I'm going to eat it. I'm going to bring it into me and sow it into my life until it becomes real, until it becomes this shining glory in my life. Third, third point it's a meal of death that we eat together. So the Lord's table is a communal meal. Jesus says, this is my body, which is for you. Now the problem is that in the English, we do not distinguish the second person uh, second person uh, pronoun, singular and plural, right? So it's all one word, right? You singular, you one person, you, many people, it's the same word. But in the Greek, they are different words. Okay, So when Jesus says, um, this is my body, which is for you, he's saying, for you all, okay, as a group. What does that mean? This meal is for the church as it is gathered together. It is not to be done alone in your bedroom, by yourself. That's the first thing. The second thing is not only is it a communal meal, but I want you to know it is a very intimate communal meal. In the ancient world, um, to eat with someone was a deeply personal, intimate act. And this was especially communicated uh, through the posture of eating. Um, In Western cultures, uh, how do we eat? We eat like civilized people, right? We eat at a table. Everyone sits on a chair. Everyone's sort of like evenly spaced out, right? Because we have to respect each other's personal space. But in the ancient world, they didn't have tables. Everyone would eat lying on the floor, on a mat. And you would lean um, on one arm on a mat, and then you would reach in for the food with the other arm, and your feet are radiating out because your feet is dirty, you want to keep it as far away from the food as possible. And in your face, everyone's face is up close in a circle. So it's a very intimate way to eat. What does that mean? It means that the Christian life is not to be done alone, but in community. It means that we need each other. We should get involved in each other's lives. We should love one another. We should help one another. And I want you to know that when we do that, to the degree we do that, I believe it is profoundly attractive to our culture right now. One of the books that um, really impacted me, I read several uh, just a couple of years ago, is a book called iGen by Gene Twinge. Gene Twinge is a professor at San Diego State. And uh, the book is about Gen Z. Gen Z are people born after 1995. So these are young people who are currently in high school, of college age, and then a little bit after college. And um, she says there's never been a generation like this generation. Anxiety, depression, addictions, suicide are all at unprecedented levels. She says in 10 years the suicide rate for this uh, group, this age group, has gone up 70%. It is now the second leading cause of death for young people. There are twice for this generation, there are twice as many suicides as there are as there are homicides. She says drug related deaths have doubled. And she says you could think of drug addiction as a kind of slow motion suicide. And it's not just Gen Z. We're seeing this across all generations. Depression, addiction, suicide. Um, Sociologists are calling this deaths of despair. And because of deaths of despair, for the last six years, the life expectancy rate in the United States has steadily dropped. This is unprecedented in U.S. history. This has never happened before. We are now at a 20-year low in, in life expectancy. What is going on? Why are people taking their lives? It is not because we are in some great economic depression. This is a deep paradox because there has in fact never been a period of greater prosperity or wealth. Americans right now have more time off at work. I know it doesn't seem like that. We have more time off at work. We go on more vacations than in any previous generation before us. Our homes are bigger. The average home size is three times the square footage of the average home in the 1950s. We are swimming in stuff and devices. There has never been a richer generation than our generation right now. So then what is the explanation? So Gene Twenge says... This rise in uh, anxiety, depression, suicide coincides with the rise of what she calls the epidemic of loneliness. There has never been a culture like ours where people are more disconnected and isolated. In the 1950s, a sociologist would ask this question, how many close friends do you have? So the definition of a close friend is somebody that you can confide in and share your troubles with. How many close friends do you have? In the 1950s, the average person answered, I have five close friends. I have five people that I can go to and just pour out my troubles. By the 1980s, that number dropped to three. Right now, the most common answer is zero. Zero close friends. They just did a survey of Gen Z. Gen Z reported that one-third say that they have no friends at all. Not no close friends, no one that they could even call a friend. I think um, particularly for young people, this sense of loneliness is really amplified by social media. When I was uh, a young person going to school, um, I was not a very popular kid. So school wasn't terribly fun and exciting for me. But when I got home, it was a reprieve. It's over. I'm, I'm safe at home. But because we all have smartphones, Because everyone's on social media, right? You can never escape from it. And so when you look at your Instagram feed, it looks like, it looks like, everyone is out there having fun with their friends. But according to time diary surveys, so what is a time diary? So they will pay these people, here's a log, every hour, write down what you're doing. Okay, And they collect thousands of these, uh, what are called time diaries. And according to the di- Time Diaries, social interactions are way, way down. This is partially why malls are shutting down. If you've seen the Netflix show Stranger Things, it's about um, being a teenager in the 1980s, um, at plus like monsters. But the, the, there's these scenes where they're at the mall. And as I was watching these scenes, like the mall is packed. It's crowded. And people are like, whoa, were malls really like that? Yes. The 80s were my childhood. The malls were the place to be. But nobody goes to the mall anymore. And according to the Time Diary, listen to me, according to Time Diaries, most young people, most nights, are home alone watching Netflix on their phones. But we see these curated lives on social media and it just amplifies the sense that we're alone. I believe there is a sickness in our culture of radical individualism. No one has a right to tell me what to do. We live in this hyper-competitive economy. Everyone is hustling. Everyone is doing their, their own thing. Everyone is separated, but we are all hungering for connection. Um, a while back, I saw this uh, interview of Steve Aoki. I don't know if you guys know who Steve Aoki is. He is a professional DJ. And um, there was this sort of uh, preview gla- graphic. Uh, and the reason why I clicked on it is because it said, um, Steve Aoki makes $500,000 a night. And I was like, whoa. How do you make that much? I mean, doesn't he just pick songs for a playlist, right? How is that worth $500,000? So I watched the video, and I was entranced. He is amazing, truly talented. He throws these incredible parties with like thousands of people, and they're thronging, and the music is pulsating. And the interviewer asked him, Steve Aoki, why, why are these things so popular? And this is what he said. He said, people, what they ultimately want is they want to be fused together. He says people want to be merged into each other. That's what he said. And because of the music and the atmosphere and, you know, probably the drugs also help, you lose this sense of individuality and you experience this deep oneness, this deep, connection with the crowd. But it only lasts for a moment. Two weeks ago during the uh, mini-retreat for the core group, I shared this brief devotional on the early church. There's this amazing passage in Acts chapter 2. Listen to this. It says, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. Now, when it says breaking bread, this is the Lord's uh, table. And notice, they were doing this day by day. Okay? Every day they were doing this. Every day they were gathering together at the temple, in each other's homes. They were doing this constantly. They loved being together. They couldn't get enough of each other. They were hungry for each other. How did that happen? I'll tell you why. The gospel is not just a vertical relationship. The gospel is not just that you are reconciled to God, but also you are reconciled, we are reconciled to each other. The gospel has horizontal ramifications, horizontal implications. So that if you meet somebody of another ethnic group or you meet somebody of a a different socioeconomic background and you have nothing in common, right? Nothing to talk about. But if that person is a believer in Jesus Christ, you can truly say to them, brother, sister, and there is an instant kinship that is deeper than blood. I want you to know that the gospel creates a new family. It creates a new community, a new people. And that is what we are doing as a church. We are reweaving weaving the social fabric. We are creating a new social reality. This is one of our core values. And so now we're going to come to the table. And I want you to know this table is a dim preview of the, of the final reality. Jesus says, at the very end of our passage, for as often as you eat and drink, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. One day, Jesus will be with us. One day, we will be feasting in his presence with our brothers and sisters in Christ forever. Let's pray. Almighty God, we come As we come to the table, we ask for the Holy Spirit. We ask for your presence so that it would not just be merely bread and cup, but it would be this vivid, palpable sign and reality of your sacrificial love that you laid down your life for us, that we were truly under the sentence of death, but it was your life instead of our life. And let this truth be real to us. Let it produce in us this wellspring of joy and peace and friendship for one another. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.